Let's pray together. God and Father, there is no one like you. We are here today to meet with you, to hear from you, to be fed by your word, to be encouraged by your presence. God, I just know that if anything good or right or holy is going to happen today, it's going to happen because you showed up and you decided to move. So God, we are inviting you into our hearts and lives right now. We're inviting you to join us and feed us with your word. Um, We're asking all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We got to celebrate a couple other things. There's some announcements that didn't make the announcements, but I'm going to announce them anyways. Number one, uh, Mr. Will Sevedal right here got engaged this week, and that's worth celebrating. uh, if you don't know, uh, he got engaged to Bit. Um, Bit, we call her Bit. Her name's Elizabeth, but she does a lot of the recordings and stuff. And if there's ever anything you watch on YouTube or a podcast, she does all that and he does all this. And they're engaged now, and I think that's really sweet. And uh, speaking of sweet things, speaking of shocking things, um, if you go to the CIY thing, I just want to double down on this talk about our CIY mix and move trips. Okay, so. Britt and I made a decision years and years and years ago because we've taken kids on these trips. Like there was a 15 year season of our life doing two church camps a summer plus mission trips with kids and all this stuff. We saw these trips transform kids' lives. They were so powerful and impactful. We said, man, it's non-negotiable. When our kids get to be this age, they're going no matter what. And so the craziest thing happened this year our kid got to be this age and we were in fact the first we are the first sign up lucy our oldest is the first kid signed up for this trip and she's not signed up because i'm a pastor here she signed up because we've watched these trips transform kids lives and so i'm just telling you one of the greatest things you could do if you have a student a a middle school kid high school kid a niece a nephew or whoever Man, getting them here, uh, not only for the trip, but for the amazing team of student leaders we have that go and take these kids, it's just worth it. I can't say enough good things about it. But anyways, the series is called Help, and we've been talking about this series over and over and over, and we've been looking at the greatest pain points in life, the things that tend to hold us back in life, and how we overcome those by the power of God's Word. This is actually the last week of our Help series, and I'm just going to say it one more time. At this church, it's okay for you to not be okay. It's okay if there are parts of your life that are a mess. It is okay if you still have some issues you're dealing with. It's okay because, number one, we believe in the grace of God. And so when we step into a place like this and we're not where we want to be, our assumption is, hey, God's not done with you yet. And we want a church where the real you can meet with the real God and you can find what it is you're really looking for. And at the same time, I want to tell you as your pastor, it's not okay for you to stay not okay. God's love for you is too big. His purposes for you are too strong for you to settle for something less than the life that God made you for. And that's especially important to preface our message today because we're talking the help, help me, the help topic this week is help, I'm stuck in sin. And so we're going headfirst into what do you do when you have sin and failure that you are trying to get rid of, but you can't seem to beat it on your own. So here it comes, a raw look at sin, failure, and what we do about it. The thing started for me this week when I was thinking 
about how no one dreams of getting stuck in sin. No one dreams, no one's like, man, one day, I hope I'm caught in this circle of lies and I hope it kind of happens and I'm going to be at my workplace and I'm going to get the job that I worked so hard for and then I'm going to fudge on some numbers and then I'm going to change a few things to cover that up and when I cover that up, I'll move over here to this other department so they don't see what I did over there and then I'll tell a few more lies till I'm backed into a corner and it's too late. I'm surrounded by lies that I created and I lose a job that it worked 25 years to get. No one dreams of that. No one dreams of addiction. Oh my goodness, I got some goals. I'd like to retire at this age, and I'd like to marry this kind of person. I'd like to live in this kind of house. And oh yeah, I want some addiction there too that robs me of all those things. I want to get hooked on pornography, alcohol, pills, gambling, whatever it is, whatever secret that may be. And I want to get so deep into that addiction that I start to hate myself when I look in the mirror. Nobody dreams of that. No one dreams of a sit-down with their children and telling them that your life is going to look different this year because of that thing that happened. And yet it happens all the time. Pastors aren't immune to it. I think it's becoming more and more common in culture for a guy who had a church for 25 years to stand up and say, hey everyone, I'm sorry, blank happened and I'm not going to be your pastor anymore. And I just can't imagine that any of those ministry leaders we've seen fall recently dreamed of that. And I don't think David dreamed of this kind of failure either. We're going to be in 2 Samuel today. Chapter 11, David, if you don't know, was God's chosen king. His fame and power were meaty. His rise to fame and power were meteoric when he won a battle for the military of God against a giant named Goliath. He expands the kingdom of Israel through the entirety of the promised land, making good on God's promise to Israel to give them that land. And after all these victories and all this comfort that's afforded to him, we get these, this unfortunate encounter that unfolds in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says, in the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and with the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, if you were in the original audience, like opening up the scroll and checking this out for the first time years after it was written, you would instantly go, whoa, hold on, this isn't right. You would instantly start going, hey, there's the king, the leader, God's appointed person with his set of responsibilities over here. And this is what he should be doing. This is where he should be going. This is what he should be handling. And yet we see the king over here. You would start to see that something tragic is about to happen, which it does. Verse 2, it says, On uh, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace 
from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. If we had more time, I could tell you how all sin starts with a look. The look becomes an idea, the idea becomes a desire, and the desire becomes an action. And that's why when Jesus talks about sin, he talks about our eyes and how important it is that we start by taking care of what we see with our eyes. I don't have time for that, so we'll just keep going on in our story. It says, verse 3, the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Who's Uriah the Hittite? It's one of David's best friends. It's a man that's stuck by David's side when everybody else had given up on David, and he is presently out fighting the battle that David is supposed to be a part of himself. This is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David's up on this balcony. He sees her bathing. He sends somebody to inquire. He comes back and he says, that's Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In verse 4, it says, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, uh-oh, I'm pregnant. And from here, things just get worse. David's little moment starts to transform and damage the lives of other people. He's got this problem on his hands and now he decides he wants to cover it up. And so what he does is calls down through the chain of command to bring Uriah home and hang out with his wife. Let's bring him back from the battle. He brings Uriah back. He goes, you know what, Uriah, you've been so busy out there. You're a good friend of mine. We've been through thick and thin. I just wanted you to come home and rest for a little bit. He gives Uriah a bunch of wine. He sends him home to Bathsheba, thinking that he's just going to do what people do in that sort of situation. But he doesn't. He can't bear the thought of sleeping in a comfortable bed while his friends are still fighting a battle. So he refuses to go in his house. He sleeps out front. Now David still has a problem on his hands. He does the thing again. Uriah refuses to go in and take comfort when all of his friends are fighting a battle. And we're starting to see this contrast in the character that's being displayed in these two men. And so when David can't get Uriah to go and sleep with his wife to blame the pregnancy on Uriah and just kind of cover the whole thing up, he has to take things a little bit further. So he sends Uriah back to the war and he calls General Joab and he says, hey Joab, here's what I need you to do. I want you to go attack uh, this fortified position, but when everything gets heated, when the battle's going on, I want you to pull your troops back, all of them, except for Uriah, and that way he's going to be dropped in the battle. Joab just follows the command and he does what he's supposed to do, and sure enough, Uriah is killed in battle. And so if you're keeping track up to this point in the story, David has broken about five of the Ten Commandments and his sin is now starting to break the lives of other people as well. And David thinks no one has seen what just happened. The problem is that God saw and God always sees. So God raises up this prophet, a man named Nathan, to go and confront David. And we get it in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had a very little, or the very large number of sheep and cattle. Sorry, the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except this one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives... The man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. And here's the words. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave, you your master, or gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you even more. You did, or why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And this moment, this moment for David that is supposed to be marked by stability, strength, peace, and prosperity is now marked by guilt, shame, fear, and destruction. And if you kept reading the story, you would see that it only gets worse from there. And not only does David's sin destroy his legacy, compromise his kingdom, but it damages the lives of many other people around him as well. And yet, David made it through. And in spite of this colossal failure, which became a public spectacle, David recovered. His sin did not have the final word in his life. He moved from the place of disdain, discouragement, and public humiliation back into the purposes of God. And by God's grace, this sin did not win. What we are going to do for the rest of our time is look at what David did, what he didn't do, what he could have done, and how by God's grace he won his battle with sin, and I believe wholeheartedly we can 
too. What did David do? Number one, if you're a note taker, is take sin seriously. David took sin seriously. The beginning of healing and recovery from sin is to first start taking sin seriously. For his foibles and mess-ups and excuses and problems, when we get to chapter, two, uh, chapter 12, verse 13, Nathan gives the big long poem, the story, the parable about what he has done. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Not, she made me do it. Not, do you know all the stuff that I've been through and how much pressure it is to be king? Come on, can we look the other way for a minute? David doesn't say, hey, don't judge me and impose your religion on me. David owns a sin, admits a sin, and he takes the sin seriously. Uh, as a matter of fact, we actually have access to David's journal. His journal is included in the book of your Bible that's called the Psalms. And we actually know what journal entry he wrote the day after this happened. It's Psalm 51. And listen to his words. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And he's talking to God. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified God when you judge. Can I tell you something? We will never overcome sin by justifying our sins by ignoring our sins, by interpreting our sins through the lens of culture and going, look, I mean, come on, that's archaic. This is Bible stuff from thousands of years ago. Here and now we know I'm a, I'm a progressive, justified person and this isn't sin. You will never heal from sin if you're making excuses about it and justifying it. The whole healing journey begins when you call it what it is. It, it was weird. I'm preparing this whole message. It's the last message of the help series. Why did I as a pastor feel uncomfortable using the word sin? I kept wanting to say mistake. I kept wanting to say shortcoming. I didn't want to say sin because in our culture we've gotten to this place where it's like the only thing that is wrong is to say someone is wrong. And it is the way to stay stuck in your sins, failures, and problems. It begins. Healing and health begins with acknowledging that sin is a big deal. It's here, here's, here's a crazy, deep theological statement. Sin is wrong because God said so. Sin is wrong because in His loving power, He laid a way for us that is right and true and good. And we step off that path. It is a problem simply because He said so. Sin is also a problem because sin hurts people. And God loves people. And can I tell you something? Every single sinful action we commit has a victim that is a real human being. 
No matter how small you think the lie is, no matter how you believe nobody's hurting, I'm not hurting anybody, no matter what you think it is or what mental construct you have that justifies it, there is always a part. Let me tell you, like, this is how sin works. This is why it's bad, okay? There is always a human victim, and God loves all humans. So when I do something that hurts a human, I am now opposed to God. Like, if you hurt my son, or if you hurt one of my daughters, and then came to me and said, well, hey, that's just between me and them. Like, you and I are still cool. I'm saying, no, we're not cool. I have a problem with you because you have a problem with them. When we sin, we hurt people that God loves. For God so loved the world. The world is full of people that God loves. When we hurt them with our sin, we have a problem with God. That makes sin very serious. Sin is serious because in 1 Peter 5.8, he says it like this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to what? Devour. Personal sin will devour your confidence. It will steal the joy from your faith. It will devour your ability to parent. It will devour your future before you even get to it. So we take sin seriously. Our sins devour other people. And that matters to God. And this is important. See, sin is not sin because the Vatican said it so. It's not sin isn't sin because the Puritans said so. Sin's not sin because your grandmother said so. Sin is not sin because God thinks it's yucky. Sin is sin because it devours people. And God loves people. The pornography thing that is so prevalent right now is a problem because there's a person on the other end of that screen getting dehumanized. And if you're in a relationship, it compromises the integrity of the connection with the person you're connected to. Those three sentences you told them about that person when that person wasn't there is a problem. Because God cares about that person. In those three sentences, what they really communicate is, I don't think that person's worthy of God's love. Sin is an issue because there's always a human victim. And God can't stand when humans are victimized. Sin is serious. And it's uncomfortable. It's not fun to talk about. But you can never get to healing until you get there. And can I tell you something? I'm not here to like guilt trip you today. Okay, like I could do the pastor thing where I slow my voice down and I describe sinful situations and what happens in the heart of the loved ones and then what happened in the family. And I could draw up a bunch of guilt in this room. But can I tell you something? Way more than emotional feeling, I need you to make an intellectual decision and come to understand in the deepest form of truth, sin is a problem because it hurts people. That will change your life far more than some fleeting emotion that's gone by the time you get to lunch today. Sin is a big deal. 
You go, Matt, I got it. I got it. I got it. I, I'm okay, man. Like, dude, we all know it's a church. I came to church. I don't like sin. Here's the spot. Here's the place. Don't miss this. Don't use disappointment as an excuse for disobedience. This is where more and more and more people of faith get wrapped up in sin, even though they don't want to. It's when I'm disappointed and I allow that to give me license for disobedience. She's not meeting my needs, so I have to do blank. Well, he hasn't been giving me the attention I deserve. So this has got to be okay. Well, God's letting me experience all this pain. And so he doesn't matter. He doesn't mind if, if I self-medicate. Come on, he's an all-knowing God. He knows what I'm going through. He could have changed it for crying out loud. If he would have, I'd be okay, but I'm not. So I'm going to go over here and indulge in this to make up for the pain that I experienced over there. Do not fall into the trap. Don't let your disappointment push you towards disobedience. Sin is sin and it's serious. Okay, let's keep moving. What David do? We'll go to one that he could have done but didn't. Number two is this. You safeguard against sin before it happens. You safeguard against sin before the moment happens. If we go to verse one again, that first sentence we started off, in the springtime when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Go to the next one. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. We could have avoided this whole story. We could have avoided this whole encounter if David just chose not to be in the place where the temptation was going to exist in the first place. We safeguard against sin. Go to the next one for me. We safeguard against sin. And there's two ways we do that. We want to do early boundaries and pre-planned escapes. Okay, we're going to get super functional here. We want early boundaries and pre-planned escapes. Look, this is high tech, isn't it? That is paper tape to a chair. It doesn't get any better than this on a Sunday morning. But here's what I mean. We want early boundaries to protect us from sin. We want, if this is like doom and danger, like a sin, like this step right here, whoop, I'm off, I'm doomed, I'm ruined. I want boundaries that come well before the doom and ruin. Even, okay, look at this. What if right here I am not sinning? This is not sin. This is biblically okay. I'm hanging out right here where the doom is. I don't want boundaries that are one step away from destruction. I want early boundaries that keep me from ever getting there. Come on, come on, come on. Like when you're on a flight, when you're on a flight and you're going anywhere east and you got to go over the Rocky Mountains, you don't want a pilot who's like, hey guys, I've got some good news. We're going to see how close we can get to those mountains today. You know, you don't, you don't want it. If I got heart surgery, I don't want a surgeon who's like, Hey guys, watch it. I'm going to see how close I can get to this artery right here. When you go get Botox, no, I'm just kidding. We're not talking about Botox at church. Uh, you don't want, when, if that's doom and danger, I want my boundaries right here. I have early boundaries, okay? So like, seriously, if overspending is your thing, you don't want Amazon 
on your phone. If fooling around in the back seat late at night is your thing, you guys need a boundary and you need to go home at 7 p.m. You don't even need to be in that car in the first place. If, if it's social media content and that girl shaking her butt on Instagram, like you don't need Instagram anymore. It's not worth it. Like you, if, if doom is over here, I'm putting my boundaries right here so we never even get to that. Our very own Shivali McIntosh, our uh, Connections Hospitality lady that does just such an amazing job, was a 20-some-odd-year Marine. And she got to this place where she's in charge of other people and people are coming and going. And I thought it was so cool. She set this boundary for herself where she never talks on the phone with a man after 6.30 p.m. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's it. If this is where weird stuff could happen or accusations could happen or bad optics could happen, I'm hanging out right over here before anything bad comes my way. Give me a nod if you understand what I'm talking about when I say make early boundaries. And, and then, what, then what we want is pre-planned escapes. We want to pre-plan the escape for if the moment happens. Uh, heard from a family recently and they came up with the coolest thing. They had this deal, the kids all became teenagers, they're out coming and going and moving and going and you know three different kids, three different places, cell phones, you're gonna be here, I'm gonna be here. And this family came up with the coolest thing. Um, they told the kids, hey, let's, let's have a deal. And if all of your friends are out and you're about to, you know, they're all like, hey, let's tell our parents we're going to stay the night here and we're really going to go do this. Or, hey, let's, um, we're, we're going to go over to so-and-so's house and let's all ask our parents to stay out for a couple other hours and, and we'll actually go do this instead. If, if any of your friends invite you to go do something that sketches you out, I want you to call. And here, this is so cool. Listen to what they did. You call us. And, and normally, hey, mom, can I do this? Hey, dad, can I do this? And they said, instead of saying, hey, mom, say, hey, mother. Instead of saying, dad, say, hey, father. And when you call me and you're in front of everybody and, um, and they're all watching you and you're asking if you can go to the thing, if you go, hey, father, can I do blank? They go, that's code for we will tell you no, no matter what you're asking for. So the kid can be out there with the kids who all want to go do something sketchy. They pull out their phone and they go, hey, father, can I go? We're all going to this. And, they're, and then dad's just like, no. And he's like, oh, come on, please. No, no, oh, that's not fair. I just want to be with them. He's like, no. And then you're like, like hey, you guys heard him. I mean, father's spoken. And they pre-planned. That is brilliant, though, because they pre-planned their escape. Britt does this. We, it, she came up with it. If she's hanging out, working out at the gym, some guy comes talk to her. She brings me into the conversation two, within two sentences. Oh, hey, hey, you need help with your squats. And so, oh, my husband already taught me how to do squats. We good. Like, the whole thing. When uh, people Instagram message me, Facebook, like, the, the, like literally the stereotypical person, you know, the person you went to high school with, message, I, I'm taking her the phone. Hey, this is somebody messaged me today, and I don't know, I don't tell, you, you want to take it? I don't know. I, I can loop you in the conversation. We have pre-planned our escapes because it, let's say there are situations, come on, let's be real. There are going to be times where you get pulled in past the early boundaries, but how cool would it be if you get there and what? You already have a pre-planned escape. What if David that day 
had some boundaries. What if he's like, when my, my, my guys go to war, I go with them. If I don't go with them, there's going to be three of them staying here with me to keep my nose clean. What if he had a pre-planned escape on the roof that day? Everything would have been different. We can fight sin before sin comes an issue. And it's the easiest time to deal with it. And finally, like, one last thing, and I seriously think this, this could change everything. And I think this is the reason that David made it. I think this is the detail that could totally transform your battle with sin. And I think it's one we can't afford to miss. What did David do? What do we need to do? We fight sin from a place of grace. We fight sin from a place of grace. Somehow, some way, through it all, David realized he had never sinned his way out of God's grip. In his journal entry in Psalm 51, there's this tiny little sentence that is so packed full of good theology. David is pouring out his heart and soul to God. And in 51 verse 12, we get these words where he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, God. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Listen to what he does not say. He doesn't say, restore to me my salvation itself. He's saying, restore back the overflowing joy I have in relationship with you, not the fact that I'm out of relationship because especially for us on the back end of the cross as people covered in the blood of Christ, we cannot out-sin God's grace and we cannot outrun His love. Can I tell you something? Our sin can damage our lives. It can damage other people. But in Christ, our sin does not revoke our status as children of God. Our sin does not wiggle us in and out of our salvation. That's the law. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ and nothing can break you free from God's grasp when you are in Christ Jesus. That's good news in my battle with sin. It changes everything. Because it means when I have sin in my life, I am not working for God's smile. I'm working from God's smile. When I have sin in my life, I'm not working to get back into God's family. I am working through my sin issues as a member of God's family. I have access to His power and love that cannot be taken from me. Some reasons, or sometimes I think we've just got this weak, anemic view of the grace of God. And the only thing that it does is keep us stuck in sin longer. I want you to see this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 
This is about Jesus. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, this is the inspired Word of God written by the Holy Spirit, carried forward through the ages, unchanging, sharper than a double-edged sword. And what does it say you are if you are in Christ? It says you are the righteousness of God. And here's the craziest part. He doesn't keep writing it and then go, unless this, this, or this happens, and then if you really mess up, then this. There are no provisos. There are no clauses. There are no exceptions. In Christ, you are the righteousness of God. In your sin battle, you are fighting your sins, not as a sinner who's lost their salvation, but as a saved one, child of God who is in his grip and that changes everything. Romans 38 and 39, so I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, hang on. According to this passage, the Bible, the Scriptures, the book of Romans for crying out loud, the crown jewel of the New Testament says, what can separate you from the love of God? Nothing. That's good news on a Sunday morning. Some of you, it's like this weekend. There's a part you wish you could erase. Some of you this weekend, like, you're like, I did that and I'm not even sure I want to be there on Sunday. This is good news because it is here to tell you that that thing did not separate you from God's love. In Psalm 103, verse 12, it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You, you've seen this before, right? Come on, globe. I have a globe spinning in front of me right here. You can see it. There it goes. There it goes. There it goes. There's a globe right here. And, and this is crazy because if I were starting here in Texas and then I was just following the Mississippi, uh, what direction am I going? Come on, help me out. Say it. Say it. I'm going what? Help the boy out. Come on. I'm going north. All right? <laughs> say it with me on three. Which way am I going? One, two, three. North. Thank you. Then I keep going. I, I am almost to the Canadian border, and I keep going that direction, uh, and I'm up into Canada now. I've been traveling which direction? Okay, and then I get to the what pole? The North Pole. Okay, thank you, thank you. We're getting there. And I don't know exactly what would be on the back side of the globe if we're at that angle. Um, we're not going to get into that right now, but what I do know is if I kept going, and all of a sudden I kept walking straight in that direction, I come over the top of the globe, I come down the back side. Now, which direction am I going? South. And then I keep going down, and, and I'm uh, somewhere in Africa or something, and, and, or, or in the ocean, probably. Uh, and I kept going south. I'm in my boat now. And I get to the what pole? South Pole. And then I kept going past the South Pole, and I wander past the South Pole up through the ocean again. And what direction am I going? Okay, very good. You guys are, you guys are geographers. This is beautiful. Watch this, watch this, watch this. Um, so so I'm, uh, I'm here, and... Um, in California, and I, hang on, I'm, now I'm backwards in my map, okay, so this way, okay, 
So I'm in California and I'm going to go this direction uh, and I'm going to get to the Mississippi River and which direction am I going? Okay, okay, then I keep going across the country and I get to the east coast and then I travel across the pond and I land somewhere in London, which direction am I going? East, okay, and then I, then I keep going past that and I keep traveling that same direction still, which direction am I going? East, we have passed the halfway mark and I'm still going east. I come around the front side of the globe. I am still going east. East and west do not ever touch. East and west are categorically removed from each other. In Christ, our sins are categorically removed from us. And some of you are going, no, 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 that's, that's too good to be true. Hold on, hold on. You're telling me I can go and sin tomorrow and my sins are categorically removed from me. Yes, I am. Wait, you, I've been meaning to tell off someone. You just wait till Monday. I, I can go in there and I'm still forgiven? Uh, yes. Wait, I can do this tomorrow on purpose because I'm bored and it feels good and I'm still saved? I'm not going to hell? Yes. You're going, that's too good to be true. I was taught that if I do something wrong, God's mad, and then I got to be good to make him happy. My friends, that's not the gospel. It's a lie. It's, that's the law which Jesus came to fulfill once and for all. You're going, oh my gosh, you mean I can sin and God still loves me and then uh, he can help me with that? Yes, this is why they call it good news. Do you know what gospel means? Good news. The euangelion, the gospel is good news. Can I tell you something? Hey, Matt, if you mess up, you have to fix it all yourself so God loves you. That's not good news. That's horrible news. And that will crush you. Good news is it's not writing on me anymore. Good news is there is a cross at the center of our Faith. And it means I can go running to God with my sin and failure for help. I don't have to go hiding in a place of shame. One of the greatest books on grace and sin, highly recommended, it's called True Faced. Not Two Faced, but True Faced. And one of the best paragraphs in their book is this one. Band, you guys can come on up. We'll finish with this. They write, do you really think God would make it so hard to live a life that pleases him? What if we didn't have to work so hard? What if our sin doesn't affect how close we are to God? What if God meant it when he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? What if God, knowing that we don't have the power to address our sin could walk right through our unresolved sin and right up to us? What if he could put his arm around us and enjoy us right now, no matter how much unresolved sin we have in our life? What if God and I 
could both stand together looking at my sin, not for the sake of condemnation, but to solve it together? What if we took responsibility for the fact that we're the ones who sinned and then with God at our side, turn to trust His provision for every sin that we've just committed? What if we truly believed we were without condemnation? What if grace was that strong? Well, that would feel amazing. Sign me up for that. I can't get enough of that. I'll trade my whole life just to have that. Because that's what I was made for. See, the beautiful thing about grace is it enables us to go running to the one who can actually help us with our sins. Do we take them seriously? Absolutely. Should we want as little sin in our lives as possible? Oh, you bet, because sin damages other people and it damages us. Does our sin have to have the last word in our lives? Not a chance. That's our gospel. And that's our good news. Would you guys stand and sing with me?